If you like scary stories and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a whole slew of them, and most of them are just 99 cents. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Again, this is a great way to support the show. That's maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood, Maniac on the Loose. Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com, sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. And now, sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, and enjoy the ride. My Haunted House I'm a single guy who would always live the apartment life, but I was tired of paying rent year after year with nothing to show for it, so I decided to buy a house. I was looking for something small and simple, but when I had the opportunity to buy a big, old, and quite frankly creepy house, I couldn't pass it up. It was a massive two-story Victorian that had a couple things going against it. First, it was a little run down and needed some work. I'm a carpenter by trade, so that was no problem. The thought of fixing up my own home was appealing to me. and. It was in a nice area, so after all my home improvements, whenever I decided to sell it, I'd likely make a hefty profit. The other thing going against the house was its history. Back in the 1970s, a man shot his twin sons to death in one of the upstairs bedrooms. The following few owners all reported hearing a lot of strange sounds, like footsteps coming from upstairs, doors shutting on their own, and occasional disembodied voices. The last owners of the house had a young daughter who had a heart ailment. She died in the upstairs playroom while rocking in her rocking chair. The creepiest thing about that was that they left that very rocking chair in the playroom. The amount of work that needed to be done, combined with the dark history of the house, allowed for me to get it for a steal of a deal. I had been living in the house for over a month with no paranormal incidents, until last night. Last night was Tuesday night. I always go bowling on Tuesday nights, however, Earlier in the day, I sprained my thumb pretty good when I hit it with a hammer, so I wasn't going to be able to grip the bowling ball well. Besides, between my job and fixing up the house, I had been working my ass off the past month and I felt like I deserved a night off, so I decided to stay in and vegetate to the boob tube. I had been watching TV for about half an hour or so when I heard the distinct sound of footsteps coming from the floor above me, followed by the floor creaking 
as if someone had put weight on a weak spot. I cautiously made my way up the winding staircase and was met by a cool draft coming from my bedroom. I stepped into the room and noticed my curtains flowing in the breeze, but I had not left my window open. When I stepped forward and closed the window, I heard a door shut from down the hallway. I quickly stepped into the hall, stopped, and listened. I didn't hear anything, so I called out. Hello? There was no response, so I slowly made my way down the gloomy hallway. I stepped into the first room to my right and looked around. As I opened the closet door to peer inside, I heard another loud creak coming from the hallway. I hurried into the hall, and that's when I noticed the last room on the left. I always kept the doors upstairs open, but the door to this room was closed. And by the way, this was the room where the man killed his sons back in the 1970s. This room was interesting. It was a gigantic bedroom with cathedral ceilings and had an ornate crystal chandelier hanging in the center of it. I was actually planning on taking the chandelier down and selling it because I thought it was worth something and it looked odd in that room. When I stepped into that last room on the left, it was that very chandelier that caught my eye. It was swaying back and forth. What I heard next made my blood chill. It was the subtle giggle of a little girl. <laughs> it was coming from the other end of the hall. After hearing the giggle, I heard loud footsteps stomping down the stairs and heard the echoing squeak of a door opening downstairs. I hurried down the hall, raced down the stairs, and found my front door wide open. After that, I did an extremely thorough inspection of the entire house. I didn't find anything unusual until I went back upstairs and entered the playroom. The empty child's rocking chair was in the corner of the room, rocking back and forth. My Haunted House, The Burglar I'm a burglar and was hired by a client to steal a rare crystal chandelier that resides in a spooky old house. Had they contacted me a month earlier, this would have been easy pickings as the house was sitting empty. Unfortunately for me, a man has since moved into the house. I've been watching him from a distance to pick up on his schedule. From what I've been able to determine, this guy goes bowling every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock and is never back any earlier than 9 o'clock. Being that it shouldn't take me more than half an hour to obtain the chandelier, I arrived at the house at 7.30. There's a thick tree that has grown close to the house and extends all the way up to the roof. Lucky for me, it's close to one of the second-story windows. As an experienced burglar, I know that it's not uncommon for people to leave their upstairs windows unlocked. 
I climbed the tree and was easily able to reach the window. Sure enough, it was unlocked. Now I just had to get that chandelier down and then I could mosey right out the back door. This should be a cakewalk. Once I climbed through the window, I casually strolled into the hallway. As I walked down the hallway, I stepped onto a weak spot on the floor and it made an extremely loud creak. Fortunately for me, nobody was home or they would have heard that easily. I shined my flashlight into each room I passed as I walked down the long, dark hall. Finally, I reached the last door on the left and spotted it. The bedroom had cathedral ceilings, but the chandelier was low enough where I thought I could reach it just by standing on a chair. I slid a chair under the chandelier and started working on getting it down. That's when I heard the sound of someone coming up the stairs. I silently got off the chair and eased my way to the door and peeked down the hall. I saw the owner of the house stepping into the bedroom I came in through. This was my own damn fault. Rather than just assuming the man wasn't home, I should have made sure he wasn't home before I entered. I was overconfident and got careless. I stepped back into the room and put the chair back where it was. I was hoping the man would just go back downstairs, then I could climb back out the window, down the tree, and he'd never know I was there. But I must have accidentally bumped the door when he stepped deeper into the room because the door shut. Rather loudly. Then I heard the man call out. Hello? I knew this guy was going to check every room. I had to find a way to get out of there. The window in the chandelier room was not near any trees. It was positioned in a way where I couldn't even climb out onto the roof, so that wasn't an option. I snuck back to the door and peeked back out into the hallway. As I did, I noticed the owner step into another room. This was my chance. I opened the door and ever so quietly made my way down the hall. If he wasn't looking as I passed the room, I could sneak right down the stairs and out the front door. And if he did spot me, well, hopefully I could outrun him. As I passed by the room he was in, I gazed in and saw that he was looking in the closet, and the closet door was obstructing his view of me. I was home free. At least I thought I was, until I stepped on that same damn weak spot in the hallway again. I could hear the man running toward the hallway. I would never make it to the stairway without him seeing me, so I ducked into the nearest room. I stepped into the room and gently closed the door behind me. I could hear his footsteps moving down the hall and they were beginning to sound distant. He was likely heading toward the chandelier room, which was perfect. My plan was to open the door a bit and spy on him. The moment he stepped into the chandelier room, I'd slink down the stairs and get out of the house without him ever knowing. That's when I heard something behind me. It was the gentle squeak of something rocking back and forth. I slowly turned my head and saw a petite little girl rocking in a child-sized rocking chair. She was in a yellow nightgown and her blonde hair was tied in pigtails. She was staring at me and smiling. 
The little girl let out a loud giggle, and it was then that I realized I could see the back of the rocking chair through her as if she were transparent. This was a ghost. I swear I could feel my hair standing on end. I no longer cared if the man saw me or not. I just wanted to get out of that house. I flung the door open, rushed down the stairs, threw open the front door, and ran. I jumped in my car and drove away, refusing to look back. I now have a new rule. I no longer rob spooky old houses. The Fisherman I was on my way home after an extremely unsuccessful day of fly fishing. The fish just hadn't been biting and I was feeling a little down because I had my heart set on a fish fry for dinner. As I winded my way down the quiet two-lane road located in an extremely rural mountainous area, I noticed a hitchhiker up ahead. He was of average build, he was wearing ripped blue jeans, a tattered straw hat, and a leather vest with no shirt. He was holding a styrofoam cooler and an incredibly attractive Orvis Helios fly rod. I thought it would be nice to chat with a fellow fisherman, so I pulled over. He was very grateful for the ride. Uh, Thanks for stopping. I was afraid I was going to have to walk all the way home. I asked him where he wanted me to take him. Up the road about ten miles, there's a dirt road. Just drop me there and I'll walk it the rest of the way. Fair enough, I said and started driving. As I drove, my eyes kept darting over to that beautiful rod and reel. It sparkled as the sun hit it. I had always wanted one just like that but could never afford it. As we drove along, I tried to start a conversation. How'd you do today? I did quite well. Oh yeah? The fish were biting? The hitchhiker shrugged. I wouldn't know. That statement didn't really make sense, but I was more interested in inquiring about the fly rod. That's one hell of a rod you have there. He eyed the fly rod for a moment. Oh, yeah. You like it? I nodded vigorously. Hell yes! I've always wanted one. My statement seemed to spark the hitchhiker's interest. Oh, uh, would you be interested in buying it? The answer to his question was, damn right I would, but I didn't want to make it obvious to him how badly I wanted it, so I tried to play it cool. Oh, I don't know, I might be. The hitchhiker opened the door to the negotiation. How much would you be uh, willing to give me for it? Now, I knew for a fact that this particular fly rod was worth well over 2,000 bucks. And it looked to be in great shape. If he told me it had never been used, I would have believed him. It looked that good. Since he wanted me to throw out the first number, I decided to lowball him just to see if he'd entertain a low price. How about 500? 
The hitchhiker's eyes widened. He looked surprised at my offer and spoke quickly. Dollars? Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you got a deal. I sat there in shock for several seconds. I assumed he would counter with something closer to the retail price. I sure didn't expect him to accept my low-ball offer. Clearly, this guy had no idea what he was holding, which begged the question, why did he have such a nice expensive rod if he was ignorant of its value? Honestly, I didn't care. I just wanted that rod. I tried my best to contain my excitement. I took my time, inhaled deeply multiple times, and nodded casually. Okay. On the outside, I appeared cool, calm, and relaxed. But on the inside, there was a festival going on. I couldn't believe I was going to own this magnificent piece of equipment. My head was in the cloud so much that I didn't even notice the pothole ahead and hit it fully. My entire truck shook like a hula dancer and the hitchhiker had to act fast to keep his cooler from toppling over and spilling out on the inside of my truck. He managed to keep the cooler from tipping over, but in the process knocked the top off of it and I saw exactly what he had inside. Three full-bodied largemouth bass. They were real beauties. There was also a severed human head. He fumbled around with the lid and covered it back up, but he knew it was too late and that I'd seen everything. I quickly pulled over to the side of the road. The hitchhiker and I stared at each other intently as we both contemplated our next moves. I didn't notice that he had a knife on him, but he must have because the severed head in the cooler had been sliced clean. Before he could get any bright ideas, I pulled open my fishing vest, revealing the shoulder holster and my 32 revolver. Upon viewing my gun, he let out a defeated breath and slumped back into the seat. Whose head is that? The fisherman I killed. I wasn't sure how to respond. I sat there staring at the hitchhiker until he spoke again. I guess you're gonna turn me in. I thought for a moment and gave him an alternative. I could do that. Or... I paused just long enough to build up his hopefulness and then continued. You can give me that Orvis Helios rod and those three fantastic largemouth bass for 400 bucks, and I'll forget I ever saw you. We shook on it. I drove him to the dirt road. He thanked me, took his severed head, and went on his way, while I headed home for a fish fry with the best fishing rod I ever owned. I'm a 51-year-old man, and I have shingles. It sucks. In case you didn't know, the chickenpox virus and shingles virus come from the varicella zoster virus. Basically, after someone recovers from the chickenpox virus, 
the virus goes dormant within the body. Years later, the virus may wake up and decide to say hello. If it does that, you get shingles. So if you've had the chickenpox virus, you have shingles. It's just lying dormant in your body, waiting. Shingles is accompanied by a painful rash and sores that usually take place on only one side of the body or face. The pain varies from shooting pains, burning, and what feels like electrical shocks. The rash and sores turn into blisters that eventually burst open and the fluid leaks out. The fluid is contagious and can possibly spread shingles to another person, but more likely will spread chickenpox to anyone who has yet to have it. Usually after five to seven days, the sores will scab over and begin the healing process, although the pain involved can persist from time to time, even after the rash is completely gone. I got shingles on the right side of my face. My forehead and area around my eye had felt tender for a couple of days. Then I noticed a couple of blemishes appear. I figured I just had a couple of pimples and didn't think much else about it until I noticed that the pimples were burning. That was unusual and the following day I noticed that the rash had spread. I did a little online research and it sure sounded like I had shingles and the rash was growing around my outer eye. I decided to go into the local walk-in clinic to verify if my assumption was correct. And it was. I officially had shingles. The doctor prescribed me an antiviral medication, but informed me that if shingles got into my eye, it could cause permanent damage, even blindness. He did a quick exam in his office and looked into my eye. He said it looked fine, but recommended that I see an ophthalmologist to check it out closer. I found one that would take a look at me that day, and he confirmed that my eyes were fine and showed no signs of shingles, which was a relief. Within a few days, the sores started scabbing over, and it appeared that I was well on my way to healing up, when I noticed that I had significant swelling under my right eye. By the next morning, the entire right side of my face was swollen up like a balloon. I went to the doctor again and learned that swelling like this could also occur with shingles, and if I just kept taking the medicine, it would go down pretty soon. But it didn't. The next day, my entire face was swollen up, and I had a new outbreak of sores on the left side of my face. I was going to go back to the clinic to see what they thought of that, but wanted to take a shower first. When I disrobed, I noticed that I now had a rash on my body, both sides of my ribcage, and also on both of my forearms and both of my thighs. This was alarming, especially since they said that shingles always attacks just one side of the body. I went to the hospital and the doctor I saw was dumbfounded. He had never seen anyone with shingles on both sides of their body to this extent before. I felt like some kind of lab rat for the next four hours as doctors after doctors came in and examined me. And the shingles was continuing to spread at a rapid pace. The rash on my rib cage had now completely wrapped around my entire torso. All areas of my legs and arms were covered. 
My face was also entirely covered and it had spread down to my neck. The pain was unbearable. It came in waves every few seconds. It felt like someone was flipping the switch on an electric chair and then shutting it off. None of the pain medicine they induced helped in the slightest. The medical people had never seen anything like this. Dozens of doctors flew in to get a look, some even from other countries. None of them had any explanation as to why this was happening or how to stop it, and they were all visibly concerned. For a long while, I was panicked and fearing for my life. I welcomed the array of doctors, hoping that maybe one of them would find the answer to my condition. Then something started to change with my mentality. My fear was disappearing and was being replaced by aggravation. I was aggravated with the doctors. They weren't capable of helping me. They knew nothing. They were all insignificant, ignorant peons. When I had the room to myself for a few moments, I got out of my hospital bed, went into the bathroom and looked into the mirror. I was now completely enveloped by the disease. The rash had become thick and scaly. It covered my entire body now. My previous flesh had been entirely replaced with this hard, crusty rash. Even my hair was no longer visible through the scabby skin. I was beautiful. That's when it dawned on me. I wasn't getting worse. I was getting better. The shingles virus had opened doors in my mind that I didn't realize I had, and it finally all made sense. The virus wasn't a sickness. It was salvation. This virus had been alive for centuries, as it spread from host to host, for tens of thousands of years, it was learning, growing, evolving. And now it reached its pinnacle. I am the first of my kind. A new breed of varicella zoster virus and human hybrid. I heard the door to my room open and listened to the footsteps of somebody entering. This was an opportunity. I stepped out of the bathroom and saw a nurse standing near my bed. She couldn't conceal her horrified expression. Fool, she doesn't know what beauty is, but she will. I rushed her, shoved her to the bed and pinned her down. She screamed, but I didn't care. Her screaming would stop soon enough. I drove my forearm down on her throat to hold her in place while I moved my face close to hers. She tried to squirm but couldn't. I was far too powerful for her now. With my free hand, I drove my fingers into my crusted forehead, ripping my flesh away and allowing the infected fluid to flow from my face. As she screamed, my viral pus oozed into her mouth and ran down her throat. It was then that two security guards entered the room and physically pulled me from her, which was perfect. When they grabbed my arms, my skin peeled away into their grasp, 
coating them with my fluid. I was so strong now that I could have tossed those goons aside like infants, but I wanted to give the ploy that they needed more assistance so that I could spread my infection further. And it worked. As more people entered the room to help, my fluid spewed onto their soft flesh. Within a span of 90 seconds, I was able to infect four security guards, three nurses, and two doctors. Now that the virus has reached full maturity, it took hold immediately. They wouldn't have to wait as long as I did. They were transformed into their new state within mere minutes. I watched on proudly as those who I infected changed and awakened. They too immediately knew that they must spread the virus to as many as they could. Ten minutes later, the entire hospital was infected. By nightfall, the entire state. We have a world to wake up. By this time next week, you'll be one of us. Stay on the trail. In the southwestern region of Mississippi is a massive forest that is popular with hikers. In one obscure section of the forest, a trail can be found that most people are unaware of. The trail goes by several different monikers, the most popular being the Trail of Despair the trail to hell, and the blood trail. Legend has it that anyone who ventures off the trail will never be seen again. It is a fact that many hikers have gone missing from that area. The following are tales from three people who left the trail and lived to tell about it. The rain. My name is Candy. My boyfriend Brent and I like to hike on weekends. We tend to vary the trails we hike down. We had heard of the infamous trail that you are always supposed to stay on for fear of getting lost or killed. The legend of the trail is well known, but there is a lot of debate as to where the trail actually is. My boyfriend has a friend that is a park ranger who insisted that he recently acquired the location of the trail. He swore he had it on good authority and gave my boyfriend the directions. We arrived at the trail. It was in a far off corner of the woods and we actually had to travel down a larger trail to locate the starting point, but we found it. It was about a yard across and not heavily traveled but was used often enough to keep it from developing much overgrowth. As we ventured down the trail, we didn't notice anything unusual. As a matter of fact, it was kind of boring. So much so that Brent thought it might be fun if we tested the legend and stepped off the trail. I was against his idea, but he insisted. He said he just wanted to walk about a hundred feet off the trail and then come straight back. Then we could tell everyone that we got off the trail and lived to tell about it. 
100 feet isn't far, so I agreed. We were about 50 feet from the trail when rain started. I thought it was strange because I had checked the weather report before we left and it was supposed to be clear and sunny all day. Brent was ahead of me and he heard me complaining about the rain. It's not raining. He turned around and looked at me. He froze in his tracks and I could tell by his eyes that something was wrong. If it wasn't raining, what was dripping all over me? I wiped the liquid from my shoulders and looked at my hands. Blood. Sure, I was freaked out, but I was more curious as to where the blood was coming from. We both looked up and could see steady streams of blood coming from something high up in one of the trees. Brent grabbed a few large stones and started hurling them at the object until it broke loose and plummeted to the ground. It was a deer head. As strange as it was that it had been placed so high up in a tree, it was even more unusual that the head had been severed straight and clean by a blade of some sort. The fact that it was still dripping blood meant that this had been done recently. We both hurried back to the trail and headed back in the direction we started from. As we hurried along the trail, we would occasionally hear brush and limbs rustling on the outskirts of the trail behind us. Something, or someone, was following us. We broke out into a full run until we reached the starting point. Once we were on the larger trail, we didn't hear anything behind us anymore. But we still hurried out of that area. The Message and my name is Max. Most folks call me Mad Max. I'm a bit of a daredevil. That's what brought me to the trail. I wanted to test out the legend. I hiked a good five miles or so down the trail before I decided to step off. My plan wasn't just to step off a few feet and jump back on so I could say I did it. I really wanted to go deep off the trail and see what the surrounding area was like. Maybe I'd be the one who could bring a little sense to the legend. I had been off the trail for about an hour when I saw a large patch of dirt on the ground that seemed out of place. It looked as though it had recently been tilled. As if that wasn't weird enough, someone had taken a stick and written a message in the dirt. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Now I have to admit, that was both weird and creepy. My initial thought was that clearly this was just some other jerk that ventured off the trail and wrote this to spook anyone who did the same. But then again, this was so random and so far off a trail that not a lot of people go down to begin with. The odds of anyone else seeing this message was remote. I was about to turn and head back toward the trail when I noticed something hanging from a nearby tree. I stepped closer until I could make it out well. It was a doll. An old, dirty, child's doll. It had a shoestring tied around its neck and was hanging from a tree. That's when I noticed another doll hanging in the next tree. And another one in the next tree. And another. And another. 
All in all, there must have been over a hundred dolls hanging from trees. Just beyond the dolls, I noticed something else out of place. It was something large and metallic. It was hidden behind a massive tree, but I could see enough of it to know it wasn't natural. I approached the tree as quietly as I could, and cautiously peered around it to see what the object was. It was a cage. A huge cage. It looked like a shark cage that had been modified with extra bars. It could easily fit five people in it. Some of the bars on the cage had dark red stains on them. My impression was that it was dried blood. I felt fortunate to be able to find my way back to the trail and to get out of the forest. The Dwelling I'm a 37-year-old female who hikes through this area of the woods a lot. I hadn't even heard of the legend of the trail. If I had, I would have respected the legend and would not have gotten off the trail that day. I was jogging down the trail and stopped when I noticed something peculiar. About ten feet off the trail was a candle sitting on a stump. It was lit. I stepped off the trail to look and see if there was anything else around it that may explain why this candle was sitting here lit in the middle of nowhere. Then, far off in the distance, I heard music. A jingle. It was Pop Goes the Weasel. The music was very tinny and sounded like a jack-in-the-box music toy. The kind where you turn the crank on the metal box, and when it gets to the pop part of the music, a clown or something pops out of the top of the box. That's what it sounded like. This would have frightened a lot of people and made them run away, but I'm not like that. I'm the adventurous type. I'm the kind of person who likes to investigate and find answers. I'm not the type to let their imagination run wild. I'm not a scaredy cat. So I followed the sound of the music. The music was farther away than I thought, but I kept following as it got louder and louder. The music stopped when it sounded like I was no more than 100 feet away. I kept going and stepped into a clearing. In the middle of the clearing was a dwelling of some sort. The dwelling looked like a portion of a rusted-out RV that was patched together with a variety of scraps such as corroded metal roofing, ripped-up tarps, random pieces of wood, and large swaths of moss. I stepped closer to the dwelling. Next to it was a fire pit that was still burning. On the ground by the fire pit was a metallic music box. Obviously someone was living out there. Whoever they were, they sure knew how to live off the grid. That was the extent of where my imagination went until I saw a pile of bones. Leg bones, arm bones, hand bones, skulls, all human. Just beyond the pile of bones was a human hand that had been nailed on a tree. And it looked fresh. I was about to turn and run back to the trail when I heard footsteps coming from just beyond the dwelling. If I ran, they would hear me. 
Maybe I could outrun them, maybe not. I opted not to try. Instead, I noticed a tight section under the dwelling, so I crawled underneath and hid. I was level with the ground and the dwelling above me cut off the majority of my view, but someone was walking around out there and I could see them, at least partially. I couldn't see past their knees. They were wearing black work boots and black baggy pants, and I could hear whoever it was. They were breathing heavily and there was a raspy wheeze to their breath. I watched as the mysterious person paced around the dwelling. I could hear them moving things around and once observed them poke the fire with what had the appearance of a machete. I took small, shallow breaths. I had no doubt in my mind that if this person found me, I'd be dead. I stayed there until well after dark. Finally, the mysterious person walked off. I listened as their footsteps got further and further away. I didn't dare move until I couldn't hear them any longer. Once everything had been quiet for ten minutes, I made my move. I slowly slithered out from under the dwelling. I very carefully and quietly made my way through the woods. It was so dark and I didn't recognize my surroundings. It was three hours before I finally reached an area that was familiar to me. From there, I was able to find my way out of the forest and to safety. Nowadays, I tend to jog in more populated areas unless I have someone with me. And I no longer venture off of trails. Snuff Film My name is Joe Sharp. I'm a private detective. I was hired by a couple to find their missing daughter, Sarah Jennings. She had vanished without a trace over a month ago. The police had made no progress and were convinced that the girl was a runaway. The parents insisted that Sarah would never do such a thing. The couple recently received a mysterious envelope in the mail. On the outside of the envelope was a handwritten message that read, She is alive. The envelope contained a DVD. The footage on the DVD was quite shocking. The quality of the footage was poor. It was dark, grainy, and extremely shaky. The video showed four young women tied to wooden poles and blindfolded. A shirtless man in a black hood stood in front of them holding a large blade. One by one, he slit their throats. He paused before slitting the throat of the fourth and final girl and turned around. His eyes widened in fear as he gawked at something off camera and a deep hollow rumble can be heard. The video cuts off at that point. The fourth girl tied to the pole was Sarah Jennings. The police conveyed to the parents that even though Sarah Jennings was still alive when the video cut off, 
she was likely killed just as the others were. After weeks of investigating, the police came up with nothing and claimed to have no leads. Having grown tired of the lack of progress from the police department, the parents of Sarah Jennings contacted me to investigate further. Upon viewing the footage, I warned the parents that if this were indeed an actual snuff film, odds are that their daughter was dead. But I told them I'd do a thorough investigation and we'd get to the bottom of all this. My first stop was to a colleague of mine named Tamale Jones. This guy looks like he just stepped out of the Great Gatsby in his tweed suit and fedora. Tamale told me that snuff films were faked all the time. My first task was to find out if this film was the real thing. He told me to visit a local sex fetish club known simply as Club Fun and to ask for a guy named Mohawk. Club Fun was one weird place, let me tell ya. It was an old elementary school. As soon as I entered the place, I saw two topless gals walking down the hall. They both looked me up and down. I was about to say this is my kind of place, until I saw a chubby naked man wearing a Jabba the Hutt mask following behind them. I approached a gal who looked like a prostitute in a platinum blonde wig and fishnet stockings. I asked her if she knew where I could find a mohawk. Go to the end of the hall, turn left, walk past the hall of toilets, then go into the last door on the left. I thanked her and began walking down the hall. My chest was reverberating by the heavy bass of the music echoing through the club. I turned left at the end of the hall and sure enough, there was an entire hallway filled with toilets. On one of the toilets sat a man. A woman was straddling him and bouncing up and down. Another man was standing up and taking a leak in the toilet right next to them. Too weird for me, so I hurried down the hall to the last door on the left. As I approached the door, I could hear a slap sound, followed by a woman's scream. I burst through the door to find a woman chained to the wall. A muscular man wearing leather pants and a ripped-up t-shirt was slapping the woman senselessly. I yelled out and reached for my 38 revolver tucked into my belt. I felt the cold steel of a gun barrel pressed against the back of my head as a man whispered, That would be a mistake. The muscular man turned around, and it was only then that I realized this guy had a mohawk. He smiled, revealing a missing front tooth. What do we have here? Are you a knight in shining armor? I looked around and saw not one, but two goons behind me with guns in the ready position. I calmed myself and tried to reason with them. Listen, just let that girl go. Mohawk chuckled and spun around to the chained girl. This guy thinks you're here against your will. The chained up girl looked at me with disdain and spat in my direction. Piss off, Dad. Since it was clear that this woman was here willingly to satisfy some strange fetish, I got right to the point. You Mohawk? Mohawk grinned. How'd you guess? I have a snuff film here. Tamale Jones said you'd be able to tell me whether or not it was real. Come on. Mohawk led me to a little room with a small television and DVD player. He put the snuff film in and watched it a few times before giving his assessment. I think it's real, but oh, what appalling camera work. 
Amateurs. Such poor quality. No serious collector would be interested in this garbage. This is something for the bargain basement collectors, or as I like to call them, the dregs of society. He handed the DVD back to me. I don't recognize the work, which is strange. The snuff community is quite small. I know everyone who is anyone. Is this all you have? Just the DVD? I took out the envelope and showed it to him, pointing out the handwritten message that said, She is alive. He nodded. I recognized the writing. Dirty little druggie named Junior. He hangs out at Fifth and Roosevelt. Fifth and Roosevelt is a seedy part of town with a lot of sex shops and hookers. I asked around for Junior and someone pointed me to a boarding house. I slipped the owner 20 bucks for his room number. He told me it was room 15. When I knocked on the door, I could hear the man on the other side coughing and wheezing. His footsteps were slow and he fiddled with the doorknob a while before finally turning it and opening the door. The kid was thin as a rail with matted hair and someone had recently kicked the hell out of him. His left eye was near swollen shut. He had a bloody lip and scratches on his cheek. I held up the envelope and pointed to the message he'd scrawled across it. Where'd you get this? Who the hell are you? The parents hired me to find their missing daughter. You're the only lead I got. Now where'd you get the DVD? I, I bought it from Cowboy. I, I, buy, I buy all my tapes from him. Who is Cowboy? He, he owns the Slippery Cat over on Columbus Drive. He sold me the DVD. I, I recognize the girl in the video. All these missing photo pictures of her all over the place. I recognized her. He took a few more puffs off his cigarette before he continued. I remember seeing the mother on the news. She was crying, begging whoever had her to let her go. I guess I just wanted her to know. Who kicked your ass? Some rich guy showed up and looking for the DVD. He had a couple of thugs with him. I, I didn't want to tell them I had given it to the girl's parents. I figured they'd been through enough with losing their daughter and all. I, I told the rich guy I just threw it out in the back dumpster. They roughed me up and left. I gave the beat-up kid a few bucks and headed over to the Slippery Cat. Cowboy was behind the counter. He wasn't hard to spot. His cheap, food-stained white tank top clashed with his fancy, expensive Stetson cowboy hat. I stepped up to the counter and held the DVD in the air. I'm Joe Sharp. I'm a private detective. Where'd you get this? Beat it. I don't talk to private dicks. I noticed cowboy reaching for something under the counter. Probably a gun or a bat. It didn't matter. I was too fast and leapt over the counter. I shoved him back against the wall and pressed the barrel of my 38 Special under his chin. I'll ask again. Where'd you get the DVD? He held up his hands and the feet and spilled the beans. Okay, okay, I'll tell you what I know. This is a weird one. It wasn't made with the intent of selling. The guy who filmed it got scared. He filmed this whole thing when he wasn't supposed to. He needed some money and sold it to me. Where can I find him? You can't. He feared for his life and skipped town. Then earlier today, some rich guy and his goons came along, looking to buy up all the copies I sold. 
I'd only sold a few, so they got them all. At least I thought they did. Where can I find this rich guy? Cowboy motioned to a card on the counter. They left their number and address over there. The address led me to a two-story federal-style mansion. Whoever owned this place was swimming in cash. I knocked on the front door. A tidy butler answered and welcomed me inside. I was quickly met by a debonair man in a suit and tie with slicked-back silver hair. We've been expecting you, Mr. Sharp. Cowboy just called me. Said you had something I'd be interested in. I cut right to the chase. Where's the girl? The rich man smiled. First things first. Hand me your revolver. I looked around the room. I was surrounded by guards. Most had their jackets pushed aside, revealing the guns in their belts with their hands on the handle. They were just waiting for the order to pump me full of lead, so I handed over my gun. Good. Now the DVD. I gave him that too. Thank you. I believe we have rounded up all of the other copies. Now tell me where the girl is. The rich man smirked. I'll do you one better. I'll take you to her. His guards grabbed me by the arms and led me down a large winding stone staircase as the rich man spoke. Human sacrifices can be traced back to prehistoric time. It was common in countless cultures, and although people are led to believe otherwise, I assure you, it's still prevalent to this day. We entered a dungeon-like room with four sacrifice poles at one end of the room. Three women were already bound to the poles. I recognized one of them as Sarah Jennings. Sacrifices have to be made to appease the otherworldly spirits. It is a natural part of life and necessary to keep balance in the world. Without it, the world will end. I rolled my eyes as they tied me against the last sacrifice pole. And here I thought you were just a murderous asshole. Go figure. The rich man scoffed at me and turned his attention to the giant owl sculpture on the other side of the room. It stood approximately 12 feet tall. A fire was burning in front of it. Rows of 10 people stood on each side of the fire and chanted. As they all focused on the owl structure, I was able to slip my fingers into my back pocket and get a hold of my pocket knife. I flipped it open and began cutting through the ties around my wrist. As I worked on my ties, a large man in an executioner's mask picked up a large blade and approached me. Just as he pushed the cold steel of the blade against my throat, I cut through the last of my ties. I gave the big man a push and then drove my pocket knife deep into his eye. He fell to the ground, grasping his eye in pain. I picked up the blade the big man dropped and immediately cut all three of the girls loose. That's when I heard the deep hollow rumble and felt the ground begin to shake. I turned to see the flames of the fire in front of the owl structure start churning, spinning, and become bright blue. I watched on as the flames manifested into a swirling, blue tornado of life. 
The rich man looked at me with fear in his eyes. What have you done? It needs a sacrifice. It needs a sacrifice. I pushed the girls behind me and shielded them from the harsh winds that now filled the room. I continued to watch the blue twisting light and felt shivers go down my spine as I witnessed two large tree-trunk arms emerge from the light. The rich man screamed and tried to run, but he was not fast enough as the arms reached out and opened its talon claws, driving its sharp fingers through the rich man's torso and then pulled him into the light. The other men in the room attempted to flee as well, but were mowed down by the claws that quickly shoveled them all into the light. And then all at once, the blue light dissipated back into the flame. The low rumbling hum stopped. The wind disappeared. All was still. Once I was certain that everything was calm and the danger had passed, I left with the girls. I was able to return Sarah Jennings safely to her parents. To say they were satisfied with my results was an understatement. They paid me handsomely, and I slept well that night. <laughs> Just another day on the job. Rooftop it was September 1st and happened to be the first day of my new job. I was hired to work in the IT department of a 10-story office building. I would be part of the Level 1 support team. My main duties would be resetting passwords for employees and helping to talk them through any issues they had that could be easily rectified. When things required in-person assistance, I'd escalate the call to the Level 2 support team. It was something I knew I'd get the hang of quickly, and if I did a good job, I was assured that there was plenty of room for promotions, so I was pretty excited. When I entered the building that first day of work, there was a buzz in the air. A lot of employees were milling around and chatting. They seemed anxious, as if they were expecting something exciting to happen and were getting antsy. Being the new guy, I didn't feel comfortable asking what the hubbub was about. I was more focused on having a productive first day at work. I was assigned to an experienced level 1 support technician. For the first week, I would just listen in on their calls. The second week, I would take the calls myself and they would be there to help me if I had any issues. And the third week, I'd be on my own. The person I was assigned to was named Kathy. She was a cute, petite, bubbly gal in her early 30s, which made her approximately 10 years older than me. She was quite knowledgeable about the job, and I was learning a lot while listening in on her calls. I sensed an underlying restlessness about her and noticed that she was constantly shaking her legs, tapping her foot, and kept checking her wristwatch for the time. She was on a call with an employee whose keyboard wasn't working right. Kathy had walked him through several different steps to remedy the issue. She had him make sure the keyboard was plugged in, then she had him unplug the keyboard and plug it back in. Those things didn't work, so she was in the process of telling him to reboot his computer to see if that would fix the issue, 
when the man seemed to get very enthusiastic. Oh my gosh, it's noon. I'll, I'll call you back after lunch. The employee hung up abruptly, and before I could even inquire as to why he seemed so animated, Kathy had sprung from her chair and was darting toward the office door. Just as she reached the doorway, she paused and waved for me to go with her. Come on, you don't want to miss this. Where are we going? To the rooftop! She hurried out the door and sprinted through a maze of cubicles. I had to jog just to keep her in sight. I saw her disappear into a stairwell and had to break out into a full dash to gain ground on her. When I bolted through the stairwell door, I could hear Kathy's footsteps a few flights up from me, so I gave chase. I was completely out of breath when I finally reached the rooftop door. I wiped beads of sweat from my brow, took a deep breath, and pushed the rooftop door open. The rooftop was full of office employees. They were staring at me when I stepped through the door. Every single one of them seemed tense, eager, and charged. When they saw me step out onto the rooftop, their anxious expressions turned to disappointment. Most of them let out an audible groan and their bodies slumped. That's just the new guy. I spotted Kathy in the middle of the group. She called me over. Shut the door and get over here, hurry! As I rushed toward Kathy, I got a better layout of the audience on the rooftop. There must have been a hundred people up there. They had gathered on one side of the roof and were all fixated on the rooftop door. Some of them had their cell phones out and were recording. I took a spot next to Kathy. As I turned and fixed my gaze on the rooftop door, I whispered to her, What's going on? Shh, just watch. I did as instructed. It was only a few minutes later when the metal knob of the rooftop door started to jiggle. A hush came over the crowd, and I could physically feel the anticipation. A few people gasped as the door flung open. Standing in the doorway was a young woman she appeared to be in her early 20s. She was wearing a long, gray skirt and a white blouse. She was pale and had dark circles under her eyes. Her hair was chestnut brown and ragged. It was hanging over her face, shielding the majority of her features, except for her eyes, which were open wide. There was obvious sadness behind them, but also a determination. Everyone froze as the woman took a few steps onto the rooftop. She was staring straight ahead. Although her gaze was in the direction of the crowd, she seemed to be staring out at nothing. After a moment, she turned and lethargically meandered to the empty section of the roof. She stopped when she reached the edge and looked up at the sky. It took me a few seconds to realize that she intended to jump. I couldn't believe all these people were just going to stand idly by and watch as this poor soul jumped to her death. I ran toward the young woman and called out for her to stop, but she didn't listen. She stepped off the edge and dropped out of sight. I let out a scream as I ran to the edge and looked down, 
knowing I was going to see the grisly sight of this woman splattered on the pavement below. But to my shock, she wasn't there. There was no sign of her at all. She was just... gone. I slowly turned and looked back at the crowd. They all appeared giddy with fascination and wonder as they conversed and interacted enthusiastically. What the hell was going on? I yelled out, Where is she? Where did she go? Some of the people on the rooftop chuckled at my reaction. Most ignored me. And then I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned to see Kathy. She was smiling sincerely and I could see empathy toward me in her eyes. You picked a hell of a day to start work here. I wanted to let you in on it, but everyone convinced me that we should just let you witness it without warning. Not many people get that experience. Most have at least a hint of what's going to happen before they see it. I was still confused as hell. See what? What the hell just happened? That was Gloria Bagwell. She worked in this building back in the 80s. On September 1st, 1987, on her lunch break, she came up to the rooftop, walked to the edge, and stepped off. Every September 1st, shortly after noon, anyone who is standing on the rooftop of this building can observe the ghost of Gloria Bagwell reenact her suicide. Frosty I'm a nurse and I work at a hospital. Recently, an elderly lady was brought in. She fell in the shower, shattered her hip, and broke her femur, also known as the thigh bone. Her surgery went well, but she was going to be in the hospital for several days. Not surprisingly, she was in a great deal of pain after the surgery and was administered a heavy dose of pain medication. Her daughter had stayed with her most of the day and evening. She waved goodbye when she left at approximately 6 o'clock p.m. About 15 minutes after her daughter left, I noticed a plump old man enter the elderly woman's room. He was dressed in a black suit and walked with an unusual twisted wood cane. His face was extremely weathered like worn wrinkled leather. His eyes were dark and I got an uneasy feeling when we locked eyes for a split second. He was carrying something white under his arm, but I couldn't make out what it was. It was about 10 minutes later as I made my rounds that I witnessed the old man in black exit the elderly patient's room and head toward the elevators. People get different visitors all the time and we don't check them in. They can come and go as they please so I didn't think much about it until the next day when the elderly patient's daughter returned. The daughter wasn't there long when a nurse was requested to the room. I entered the room and asked what I could do for them. The daughter motioned across the room to a Frosty the Snowman decoration sitting on a table across from the elderly woman's bed. 
The snowman was about three feet tall. It appeared to have a wire-framed body that was covered in a thin layer of plush fabric. Frosty was decked out in traditional snowman garb, a black top hat, fake carrot nose, corncob pipe, and a stick-like mouth curled into a grin. It had two plastic twigs for arms and had a series of black buttons down the front of its body. The center of Frosty was lit up. The colors changed every ten seconds from green to red to purple to blue. It was very cute and really did brighten up the rather bland hospital room. The daughter inquired as to where Frosty came from. I shrugged and told her that was the first time I saw it, so I had no idea. She asked if anyone else had visited her mother other than her. That's when I remembered the plump old man in black from the night before. I explained to the daughter how I saw him enter the mother's room and that he wasn't in there for more than ten minutes. The daughter questioned her mother about the strange man's visitation, but the elderly woman said she fell asleep immediately after her daughter left and she never saw the old gentleman I spoke of. I told them that I didn't think it was anything to be concerned about. The strange old man may have visited the wrong room, or perhaps he was a pastor who stopped by to give prayers. And there was always the possibility that he was just a well-wisher dropping off gifts for new patients. That happens sometimes. The next day, the elderly patient pressed the nurse button requesting assistance. When I walked in to check on her, she was holding a terrified expression and was pointing at Frosty. It moved! I looked over at the snowman and it appeared to be in the same position that I saw it in the day before. I asked the elderly woman if she was sure and she nodded profusely. It stepped toward me. The elderly woman barely finished her sentence before her eyelids fell shut and she drifted into a deep sleep. The fact that she was so heavily medicated made me assume that she was seeing things. I doubted she would even remember any of this the next day. I worked the late shift that night. It was after 2 o'clock a.m. when I decided to check on the elderly woman to see how she was doing. But then I noticed that Frosty was on the opposite side of the table that it was on the last time I was in there. The elderly woman was unable to walk, so her getting up and moving Frosty was out of the question. I asked the other nurses on duty if any of them had moved Frosty. They all said no. I brushed it off. So many hospital employees go into the patients' rooms. Surely someone just thought Frosty was cute, picked him up to look at him closer, and then set him down in a different spot. I mean, that was obviously what happened. I finished the rest of my shift and decided to pop my head in to check on the elderly woman one more time before I headed home. The woman was sound asleep. I was curious to see if Frosty was still in the same spot as I last saw him in, and was surprised to see that he was gone. I stepped into the room and rounded the woman's bed. On the floor next to the head of the woman's bed was Frosty. Someone had to be messing with me. I picked the snowman up, placed it back on the table, and headed home. The next day, just as I started my shift, I heard the elderly woman screaming. I sprinted to the room and opened the door. The elderly woman was clutching at her chest and screaming, Help me! Frosty was on the foot of her bed, facing her. 
I picked up Frosty and did my best to calm the elderly woman down. It wasn't until I took Frosty out of the room that she finally started to relax. I'm sure whoever put it there had good intentions and didn't realize that the woman had recently been freaked out by Frosty, but still, if I found out who did it, heads were going to roll. I asked around and nobody admitted to knowing a thing. I kept Frosty at the nurse's station after that. It garnered a lot of attention. Most people loved it. I did notice that it was always in a different position every time I saw it. But again, so many people were noticing it, I assumed they were just moving it around. The next day, just as I arrived to work, the elderly woman's daughter rushed to the nurse's station, demanding to know where her mother was. One of the other nurses said she saw the woman less than an hour ago, stating that she was asleep in her bed. The woman was not scheduled to be discharged or moved. There was no reason why she should not have been in her room. I rushed to the elderly patient's room. It was completely empty. The bed was made, the room was clean, and there was no sign of the woman. As we stepped out of the room, I looked down the hall and saw the plump old man in the black suit and the twisted cane again. He was holding Frosty under his arm. Frosty's eyes seemed to be staring directly at me, and I swear I thought I heard the distant cry of the elderly woman screaming, Help me! The strange man disappeared around the corner. Security was alerted, and they did a thorough search for him, but they found no trace of him or the mysterious snowman he carried under his arm. And the elderly woman was never seen again. Pirate. My father refers to me as a 19-year-old, no-good punk kid. He's not wrong. I'm a porch pirate. I scour neighborhoods looking for packages left on people's porches, and I snatch them. Prime time for snatching is Monday through Friday between 1 and 3 p.m., when most people are at work. I tend to only target houses that have no cars in the driveway and appear quiet. When I find a house that has a package sitting on the porch, I pull up to the yard, jump out of the car, make a mad dash for the porch, steal the package, and get the hell out of that neighborhood. Then I move along to another neighborhood at least ten minutes away and do it all again. On a good day, I can nab five or six packages. In December, it's not uncommon for me to come away with a dozen boxes in one day. I've scored some real treasures in the past. Jewelry, expensive watches, top-of-the-line headphones, rare cigars, a fancy-schmancy coffee maker, pricey sunglasses, a really nice scooter, a widescreen TV, drones, luggage, perfume, thousands of dollars in gift cards, and the list goes on and on. This little hobby of mine is not without risks, however. Sometimes people are actually home when I don't think they are and see me take their package. Typically, they're not too happy when this happens. 
One guy kicked my ass pretty good. My left eye was swollen shut for a week. Another guy chased me with a machete. And one guy couldn't catch me before I got back to my car, but then he got in his vehicle and gave me chase while shooting a gun out the window at me. Fortunately, I was able to lose him. The day in question had been a slow day. I couldn't find any packages sitting on any porches in any of the neighborhoods I cruised through. I was about to quit on the day when I finally saw a box on a porch. It looked perfect. There were no cars in the driveway, the house was quiet, it didn't appear that the neighbors were home either. And to top it off, the mailman left the package at the far end of the porch, away from the front door. This was going to be a breeze. I stepped outside the house, casually strolled up to the porch, grabbed the box, dashed back to my car, and drove home. Piece of cake. When I got home, I sat down in my living room and took a closer look at the box. I was disappointed that it was just a plain brown box without a store logo. The label was handwritten and there was no return address. The odds on this box's contents being a dud were increasing by the second. I ended the suspense and opened it. Inside, I found a bottle. It was about the size of a soda pop bottle, but it was solid black and had a cork in it. There was no shipping label inside or any literature explaining what it was. I was bummed. What good was a black bottle to me? I shook the bottle to get an idea of what was inside of it, but didn't hear anything. And it was extremely light. I was confident that it was empty, but pulled the cork off just to be sure. When I removed the cork, I heard a loud whoosh and a stream of black smoke poured from the bottle. The smoke slithered through the air like a snake and seemed to have some form of control to it as it collected into a long, thin cloud in the middle of my living room. Suddenly the smoke began to dissipate as it manifested into a man. A tall, bony man with skeletal features. He was wearing a white suit and matching fedora. He got a good chuckle at how shocked I appeared. Thank you for releasing me from the bottle. I couldn't believe my eyes. You're a genie! He gave me a suave nod. As your reward for freeing me, I will grant you one wish. But I warn you, be incredibly specific. In hindsight, I should have given it much more thought before I made my wish, but I just shouted out the first thing that came into my mind. A million dollars! The genie paused, waiting for more. Oh, that's right, you, you said be specific. I thought for about three seconds before I rattled off the particulars. Okay, I, I, I wanted an unmarked bills, hundred dollar bills, in a briefcase. And I want it right here in the middle of my living room within the next five minutes. The genie shrugged. Your wish is my command. And with that, he strolled out of the house. I stood there for a couple minutes waiting for something to happen. After a couple more minutes passed, I began to wonder if perhaps this genie somehow scammed me. And if he did, what could I do about it? That's when my front door flew open. An average-sized man in a nice suit with slicked-back hair barreled into my house, 
shut the door behind him and locked it. He was in a panic. He was covered in sweat and panting. In one hand, he held a large briefcase. In the other hand, a gun. Who the hell are you? He pointed the gun at me and told me to sit down and shut up. Far be it for me to disobey someone who was pointing a gun at me, so I did as I was ordered. He tossed the briefcase to me. Hide this. As he turned around and fumbled with attaching the security chain to the door, I snapped the briefcase's latches and opened it. I swear I heard fireworks as I looked down at all those stacks of $100 bills. There had to be a million bucks in that briefcase. Turns out the fireworks I heard were actually gunshots. My front door splintered as it was sprayed with gunfire. The man who had barged into my house convulsed in a dance of death as he was riddled with bullets. He collapsed forward onto my living room floor. I stood up and planned to run through my house to the back door, but felt a sharp pain in the middle of my back and my legs stopped working. I fell to the floor with a thud. The briefcase hit the floor and the cash spilled out all over my living room. It was a beautiful sight. As I rolled over and attempted to get to my feet, two large Italian men who looked like they were straight out of central casting for any mob movie stepped through the front door. I can only surmise that the guy who burst into my house with the briefcase had stolen this money from the mob. Why he chose my house to come into, I have no idea. I'd assume it was the first house he saw and hope they didn't see him enter. That's my guess anyhow. I'll never know for sure because the mobsters shot me to death at that point. But what I was sure about was that the genie did in fact grant my wish. A million dollars in unmarked hundred dollar bills in a briefcase was in my living room within five minutes of my request. Serial Killer The Cat My name is Matt. I'm a serial killer. Well, I'm about to be. See, I haven't killed anybody yet, but that's all about to change. When it's all said and done, I'll go down as the most prolific, bloodthirsty, maniacal, sick, twisted, badass serial killer in the history of the world. I already have my plan in place. I've done all kinds of research and I'm ready and rearing to go. I've decided I'm going to be a camp killer. The media will eat it up since so many classic slasher films take place in a camp setting like Sleepaway Camp, Madman, The Burning, and of course, Friday the 13th. I've been staking out a small summer camp known as Camp Friendly. I even decided to get a job as a dishwasher in the kitchen just to get a proper lay of the land. I'll target all of the female camp counselors. In this camp, the majority of the counselors have their own private cabins. This is perfect for me. I can enter their cabins late at night while they're asleep, quickly slit their throats before they have a chance to scream, and move on to the next cabin. Of course, every good serial killer has to have some kind of a calling card, and I've come up with something very creative. After I kill my victim, I'll cut their tongue out, and then I'll take a paintbrush, dip it in their blood, and paint the word cat on the wall. 
I'll be known as the cat, and the press will have a field day with the whole cat-got-your-tongue thing. They're going to love me. I'll be their wet dream. After the buzz of my camp slaughter dies down, I'll strike again at another camp in another part of the country. And they'll know it's me because of my moniker. I even bought a latex cat mask. It has menacing eyes and a snarling mouth. When I first got the mask, I put it on and practiced slashing motions as if I were killing people. That sucker gets hot fast and it's hard to breathe in. The eye slits are small, so if the mask moves around, it obstructs my view. I certainly can't have that, so I made some modifications. I enlarged the eye holes significantly and completely cut out the mouth so I can breathe freely. It still looks kind of like a cat. It's good enough, and more importantly, it's very functional. I bought a very comfortable fitting black long sleeve shirt and black cargo pants to wear as well. They match nicely with the mask. My overall outfit should give my victims a nice scare before I kill them. Tonight was the perfect night for my murderous debut. There was supposed to be a thunderstorm. Sure, it might be a little bit cliche, but it definitely sets the mood. Plus, the noise from the thunder would help drown out any potential screams. There were six cabins I was going to hit tonight. Lights out for everyone, it's 10 o'clock, so I thought I'd start my killing spree at about 1 o'clock in the morning. Everybody should be in a heavy sleep by then. I stood by the edge of the forest and observed for a short bit before I made my move. Every cabin was void of light. All was silent. No talking or laughing. It was all as I had hoped. The rain hadn't started yet, but there was plenty of thunder and lightning. The time was now. I pulled my cat mask over my head, stealthily left the cover of the forest, and approached the first cabin. This was the head counselor's cabin. She had quite the rack on her, so I was looking forward to taking a peek at those bodacious set of tatas after I eliminated her. Not surprisingly, her cabin door was unlocked. During my research, I had discovered that almost nobody at Camp Friendly locked their doors. That's how safe they felt. I was about to change all that. I pushed the door open a crack to peek in before I entered. The continuous flash of lightning illuminated the room quite well. I could see the head counselor tucked in under her covers, fast asleep. The door creaked rather loudly as I pushed it open, but the head counselor did not stir. I took out my six-inch hunting knife, which I had sharpened earlier, and took slow, quiet steps toward the bed. She had the covers completely over her head, but her humongous hooters made it clear that she was lying on her back. This was perfect. I could just pull the covers off of her and cut her lovely throat before she had any clue as to what was happening. I mean, I wanted to scare some of the gals before I killed them, but this was my first one. She needed to be taken care of quickly. I grabbed hold of the edge of the covers and yanked them off of her just as a fantastic flash of lightning lit up the room like daylight. I leaned forward to do the deed but then froze when I noticed that her throat 
had already been sliced, and someone had plucked out both of her eyes. Suddenly, the overhead light in the cabin turned on, unveiling the room from the dark. The first thing I noticed was the bloody words on the wall that spelled out, I see you. I spelled E-Y-E. I heard a loud creak from behind me as though someone had stepped on a weak floorboard. I spun around to see who it was and was met by an axe. I could tell that the hack was deep because I could feel the cold steel of the blade halfway into my head. I collapsed onto the cabin floor, but fell in a way that I was propped up against the wall. I survived for about five more seconds, plenty of time for me to get a good look at my killer. They were wearing a doctor's lab coat that was spackled with blood and wore a large latex mask that was shaped like a giant bloodshot eyeball. Serial Killer The Eye Doctor My name is Sherry. I'm a serial killer. Who says women can't be slasher-type serial killers? There's no rule against that, and I wanted to go down as the foremost female serial killer of all time. My favorite movie ever is Friday the 13th, so I decided I wanted to be a summer camp killer. I had honed in on a summer camp called Camp Friendly. I actually got a job working in the kitchen as a cook just to get a good feel for the place. I had the entire blueprint of the camp etched in my brain. I was ready. The plan was to kill all of the counselors, both male and female. I thought I could pull it off due to the fact that all the counselors had their own cabins. I could just sneak in there late at night while they were sleeping, pull back the covers, and slit their throats one by one. I even had an awesome idea for my serial killer signature. I would pluck the eyes out of my victims and write, I see you on the wall in blood. I being spelled E-Y-E. Get it? Since this was my first massacre, I wanted to make sure they got my name correct, so I'd carve the words, The Eye Doctor was here, in the flesh of one of my victims. My serial killer's attire is a doctor's lab coat and a latex eyeball mask. The mask works quite well because the white bloodshot section of the eye surrounds my head, the blue eye color of the mask ends at my hairline, and then I paint my face black and that gives the appearance of a pupil. It works out great because it allows me to see and breathe freely, which is very important in the serial killer trade. My first kill went smoothly. I targeted the head counselor with the huge boobs to go first. It was easy peasy. I snuck into the cabin, pulled the covers off of her, slit her throat before she knew what was happening, and then plucked her eyes out. She bled profusely, so there was plenty of blood to use to write on the wall. It was a piece of cake. As I left her cabin and started toward the dwelling of my next victim, I noticed some movement near the edge of the forest. It was some guy dressed in black. Lucky for me, he was pulling a cat mask over his head as I stepped out of the cabin, or he probably would have seen me. 
I slipped out of sight behind the cabin and watched as the Catman sneakily approached the head counselor's cabin and entered. I carefully made my way to the front of the cabin, pushed open the door, and watched as the Catman pulled out a knife and jerked the covers off of the head counselor. This man in the cat mask intended to kill her. I'm not sure if she was his only intended target or if he was planning on more carnage, but either way, this place was only big enough for one killer, and that killer was me. A flash of lightning revealed my handiwork. I figured I'd let the cat see the rest of the show and turned on the light. He saw the writing on the wall and turned around just in time to receive the blade of my axe. It was a thing of beauty. I watched as the life drained from his eyes and then removed his mask. I recognized him as the dishwasher. It was perfect. Just another camp employee to add to my tally. And now if you'll excuse me, I have more victims waiting for me. Grave Robbers I never thought I'd say this, but I'm a grave robber. Allow me to explain. My husband Phil is a renowned and respected scientist, but he doesn't receive a bonus for the admiration of his colleagues. He makes only a modest salary by today's standards. For the last few years, he spent the majority of his spare time working on something that he described as potentially life-changing. He wouldn't tell me anything further until he perfected it. Perfection occurred earlier in the week. He arrived home from yet another late night with a smile on his face and a fancy bottle of champagne that was well out of our price range. Before I could scold him for being reckless with our finances, he sat me down and explained everything. He had successfully created a formula that emulates death. It slows down the heart, lungs, and all other vital functions used to determine life or death. The formula would work for 24 hours, after which the subject's body would quickly return to normal. Phil claimed that the formula worked so well that no doctor in the world would be able to ascertain that the subject was still alive. Anyone who took this substance would be declared dead within minutes. That all sounded fine and dandy, but I wasn't quite sure why this was such a groundbreaking moment. Then he went into detail. He explained that a few years ago he took out a gigantic life insurance policy on himself. And once he was declared dead, I could cash it. Then we could retire to a Caribbean island. We had always dreamed about doing such, but knew we would never be able to afford it. Until now. His plan was to ingest the formula. He would be declared dead, most likely by sudden heart attack. Once I obtained a death certificate, I could cash the life insurance policy and our dreams could become reality. 
Of course, there were a few details about his death that had to be taken care of first, but Phil had already planned it all out in advance. He would take the formula at night outside of his office while he and a co-worker walked to the parking lot. Their building was right next door to a hospital, so he'd be rushed there and declared dead on arrival. I'd play the part of the shocked and grieving widow. I got an A in drama class back in high school, so I was confident I could pull it off. I was to inform them that I did not want the body embalmed and that I wanted my husband to be buried immediately with no funeral or memorial service of any kind. Phil was always vocal about his disdain for what he considered a rather morbid tradition, so that would come as no surprise to anyone. Phil gave me the number of a grave robber. He had already been in touch with him and prepaid him. This man made a disgusting living from digging up graves, breaking into coffins, and plundering valuables from the body of the deceased. This was going to be an easy night for the grave robber. All he had to do was dig up the grave and pop the seal of the casket. He was not to open it. I would instruct him to wait by the car. At that time, Phil would emerge from the casket and hide in the nearby forest while the grave robber covered the grave back up. Nobody would ever know the truth other than Phil and me, and no one would ever suspect a thing. Everything was going just as Phil had planned. He took the formula just before leaving the office. By the time he was in the parking lot, he collapsed. Multiple co-workers were there and hurried him to the hospital, and just as we hoped, he was pronounced dead on arrival. The funeral home was happy to expedite my requests. Upon Phil's orders, I bought the largest, cheapest casket available, which wasn't more than a pine box. That was perfect, as it would be very easy for the grave robber to open up. Phil had already tested out a similar casket to determine how long he could breathe within it before he suffocated. He had enough air to breathe for five hours in the coffin. I had the funeral home bury Phil the next day at 2 p.m. and told them not to put his body in the casket until the grave had been dug and they were ready to seal it and put him in the ground. He had taken the formula at 7 p.m. At this time of the year, it gets dark by 5 p.m. The plan was to get to the cemetery shortly after 5. At that point, Phil would have two more hours of oxygen left. The grave robber insisted that he could easily uncover a freshly covered grave in less than two hours. When I picked the grave robber up, I didn't doubt him for a moment. He was built like a Mack truck. His hands looked like catcher's mitts. His face was large and weathered. He had a menacing appearance and a huge shovel. But he seemed nervous, which I thought was unusual for a grave robber who wouldn't technically even be robbing this grave. That's when he explained that earlier that day, he sprained his shoulder and wasn't sure he'd be able to get the grave uncovered in the time frame I demanded. I panicked and pounded on the accelerator. I flew down the back roads to avoid police because getting pulled over would likely be the death of my husband. I was able to shave off about 10 minutes from the drive to the cemetery and we arrived at 4.50 p.m. Phil had only 130 minutes of oxygen left. 
I dropped off the gravedigger and told him to get to work and sped to the nearest hardware store to buy myself a shovel. I returned to the cemetery and started shoveling. Even with an injured wing, the grave robber's work at tearing through the earth was impressive. I was doing my best, but wasn't sure my assistance was going to be enough to save Phil. I was covered in sweat, my hands were blistering and bleeding, my heart was pounding out of my chest, but I never slowed down. And neither did the clock. Every time I looked at my watch, it seemed like another 15 minutes were gone. 6.15, 6.30, 6.45. It was 6.58 when the grave robber's shovel hit the top of Phil's coffin. It only took him another seven minutes to uncover it. It was 7.05. Five minutes past Phil's oxygen estimate. I feared the worst as the grave robber drove the shovel head into the crease of the casket's lid and broke the seal. My prayers were answered. Phil was alive. Apparently his oxygen was completely used up and he had been holding his breath for some time. When the grave robber cracked the seal to the casket, Phil shoved the lid open and took in a loud, gasping inhale of fresh air. <sighs> this freaked out the grave robber. He had no idea that Phil was alive. He started screaming, Zombie! Zombie! and withdrew a revolver from his jacket and shot Phil in the head multiple times. The grave robber then climbed out of the grave and ran away. I thought it was such a good plan. Such a shame that it didn't work. I could take the insurance money and move to the Caribbean. Phil would want me to. But I didn't want to go there without Phil. I didn't want to do anything without him. I did cash the insurance policy. I used some of that money to hire a hitman. He should be here any minute. I don't want to live without my husband. The Commitment He left me. This isn't the first time. He did it several times before, but never for long. Never this long. There was something different about this time. Something more conclusive. His tirade was quite convincing. More so than in the past. It really sounded like he meant it. But he'll come back to me like he always does. Won't he? We've been through so much together. I've known him since he was 15, and we've rarely been apart since. We went to prom together. We went off to college together. I was with him for all the milestones in his life. When he bought his first car, it was me who spent the day joyriding with him. I helped him celebrate when he graduated high school, college, when he got his first job, when he received his first paycheck. We had endless fun on the countless vacations we went on together. The concerts, the restaurants, the movies. We're best friends. Did I mention we lived together? 
and it hasn't all been laughter and lollipops. I helped him get through all his dark times as well. When his mother passed away, I didn't leave his side for an entire week. In all his times of trouble, it is I who he turns to. What will he do without me? As for me, I'll be fine. I have a slew of other men pawing all over me. Multiple men. Every night. There's no shortage of them. But they're all just looking for temporary fun. They aren't interested in a commitment. Like he was. This is what I've been reduced to as I wait for him. And wait, I will. My commitment to him is unbreakable. I'll always be here for him. Always. And he knows it. I do realize each day that passes without him returning to me means it's less likely that he ever will. And eventually I will have to come to the understanding that I am gone from his life forever. I try not to think about that. But I know it's looming out there in the not-too-distant future. But we haven't reached that point yet. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Here I am again, sitting at a bar, all alone. Not literally. I'm popular. But none of these others love me like he did. As the night continues, people shuffle in and out. But not him. Maybe tomorrow night he'll show, or the next night, or the next night. How long am I going to keep thinking that? How long will I continue to have hope? How long before I give up? That's what I was thinking when he returned. And somehow, I knew all along he would. He sat at the bar across from me and stared at me. His eyes were fat with tears that streamed down his face. I watched on as he slammed his fist on the bar in pain and disgust. He was telling himself that he didn't want me anymore, that he didn't need me anymore. But here he is. Again. He said something to the bartender and pointed at me. The bartender grabbed me by the neck and poured me into his glass. He lifted the glass and we stared at each other for a long time. Words weren't necessary. He knew exactly what I was thinking. I knew you'd be back. The Professional I was clipping the bushes around my house when they came. They, whoever they are, some branch of the dark government that could likely be traced to the CIA. Smiley emerged from the limo, dapper as always, donning a pinstripe suit and fedora. His face was round, chubby as his body, and it always held a grin, no matter how despicable the task he was handing out. He got right to the point. Hello, Sonny. I got a job for you. I'm retired. We need you one last time, Sonny. I said I'm retired. Smiley pulled out a thick envelope and tossed it to me. 
I peeked at the bundle of cash within. Triple your normal fee to entice you to come out of retirement for one more job. I eyed him suspiciously. They knew I was retired. I was done with the business. In my prime, I was one of the best killers for hire in history. Even as I aged, I remained the best. Even with my high fee, I was constantly in demand because I always got the job done. Most importantly, to my clients, I never asked questions. They gave me the information and my full fee up front, and I proceeded, no questions asked. I had been enjoying retirement. Smiley could tell by my expression that I was not pleased with being bothered, but he persisted. I need you, Sonny. You're the best. I was the best. Now I'm just a 69-year-old man who pulls muscles if I blink too hard. You should hire Jacoby or Willis. I'm sure they can pull off whatever you need and they're a lot cheaper than me. We hired Willis first. He got wasted. I was surprised by this. Willis was young and a bit reckless, but efficient. Then Jacoby. He's probably the best now that I'm retired. Hell, I trained him. He's dead, too. I finally set my clippers down and gave Smiley my full attention. Jacoby was one of the best professional killers in the world. He was my protege. He took over when I retired. It was hard to believe someone got the drop on him. Just this once. Understand? Smiley handed me a manila envelope. All the info you need is in there. Welcome back. A week later, I found myself sitting on a bench outside a small bakery in the heart of a small town. I held a newspaper up, giving the impression that I was engrossed in the daily news. In reality, I was looking at a photo of the mark. This case was unusual. To say I was shocked to see the mark who took out Jacoby and Willis, two of the most dangerous men on the face of the earth, was an understatement. The mark was a six-year-old girl named Ruby. In the photo they provided, she was holding a stuffed bear. Her hair was tied in pigtails. She had baby fat cheeks and held an innocent smile. But there was something mysterious about her dark eyes. Ruby had been spotted near the area and just so happened to have an uncle who lived on the outskirts of town. She was with him, no doubt. But of course he wasn't staying at his house. That would be too easy. No, they were hiding out somewhere close. The uncle's name was Felix. Not much stood out about his profile. He worked for a lawn service and led an extremely average life. But it did mention that he had a sweet tooth, and his weakness was fudge. Across the street from the bakery was a candy store that specialized in homemade fudge. It was only a matter of time before the uncle stopped by to get some. I had staked out the place for two days without any luck. He arrived on day three. He was in the store for no more than five minutes and exited with a bag. I tailed him from there. 
I followed behind him, but kept a respectable distance. He drove out to the heavily wooded area and turned down a dark driveway that disappeared into the distance. I parked my vehicle half a mile down the road. The driveway likely had motion sensors to alert them if anyone was coming, so I trekked through the woods until I came upon the house. It was a large Victorian house that seemed out of place in the middle of a forest. It was lime green in color with a well-manicured yard, probably a client of the lawn service Felix worked for. He likely had info that the owners of the house were out of town and thought it a safe place to hide out temporarily. I sat and observed for hours. No dogs present. No other people milling about. All was quiet. I was confident that it was only the uncle and the little girl inside. So I made my move. It was easy to get into the house through a first floor window that was unlocked. Once inside, I could hear the man speaking. I followed his voice to the living room and stepped in with my gun drawn. The television was on. Felix was sitting on the sofa with his back to me, enjoying an episode of the Andy Griffith show. Ruby was sitting in a chair across the room. She saw me as I entered, and I pointed the gun at her head. She smiled innocently at me just before I pulled the trigger. One of the stipulations for this particular job was to confirm Ruby's death by allowing Smiley to view the body. I met up with Smiley at a designated location, which was a large abandoned factory. Smiley was flanked by two of his guards and began entering the factory when I held an arm out and stopped him. There's a six-year-old girl's dead body in there. I don't want your thugs parading around her. Just you. Come in, confirm the death, and let me get on with my retirement. Smiley was understanding. He held up his hand, indicating for his guards to wait outside, and I led him into the factory to a cheap pine box I had placed Ruby's body within. He stood by the box and waited patiently for me to open it. When I did, he looked down at the six-year-old girl... He held his trademark smile, but his brow crinkled as he was likely confused as to why he saw no bullet holes in the body. For the first time ever, I witnessed Smiley's grin disappear as Ruby reached up and grabbed his hand. When I entered the living room of the Victorian house that Ruby and her uncle were hiding out in, I didn't hesitate to pull the trigger and my aim was spot on, as it always was. The bullet simply didn't make it to its target. It stopped in mid-air three feet from Ruby's face and then fell harmlessly to the floor. Ruby held an innocent smile and made a quick motion with her hand. In an instant, I found myself suspended in the air. I was looking down on the living room. I could feel my back pressing against the ceiling. Then I felt my airways tightening, as if an invisible boa constrictor were wrapping around my throat. My gun fell from my hand, and I began pawing at my throat when I heard Felix yell out, He dropped the gun, Ruby! It's safe! Show him! Apparently, with the threat of my pistol removed from the equation, Ruby changed tactics, and I found myself catapulting toward her. 
Just before reaching her, I came to a halt, and Ruby grabbed my hand. In an instant, I witnessed everything I had ever done wrong in my life. I experienced all of the negative emotions others had felt due to my actions. The pain, the anger, the fear, the sadness, the disappointment, and so much more. It cascaded over me like a dark waterfall. I was staring my own evil in the face. I was shown the light and made aware that I was not too late to discard my evil and become a purely good person. I was given a glimpse of the paradise the world could be with no malevolence. It was now clear to me why they wanted the girl dead. The world is ruled by powerful people who have wrapped themselves in a blanket of evil. They know the influence that she possesses. Those in power are aware that if they were to be touched by the girl, they would see the light, and their powerful, tyrannical positions would be rendered meaningless. They fear losing their power. That is the extent of the evil that we are dealing with. The key is to get them to hold Ruby's hand, to see the error of their ways, to witness what can be, and to shed their evil side. Easier said than done. Most people practically worship the evildoers, believing their lies and trusting that all they do is for the good of the world, when in reality the opposite is true. People tend to believe what they are told. They won't be able to break free from the grasp of the evil until they take the girl's hand and see the light. Smiley is the key. He's not high on the totem pole, but he's the key to the door. All we have to do is get inside. Then, good triumphs and evil dissolves. Detour. I had spent the weekend at my parents' house. They live about two hours from me. The previous night, a violent storm had passed through. I had decided to take the back roads route home to observe some of the damage. There were downed trees and debris all over the place. I found myself at a four-way stop sign. I had come to a complete stop and started to press the gas to drive through the intersection when I noticed a red Mustang convertible coming quickly toward the stop sign to my left. He was flying. I hit my brakes in fear that the Mustang was not going to stop and sure enough, it did not. The convertible roared through the intersection, jammed on the brakes, did a 180 spin and peeled out zooming off in the direction I was headed. I laid on the horn with all my might. The driver, a man with long, wavy, blonde hair and wearing mirrored sunglasses, responded by giving me the finger. I yelled out several expletives, but he raced away too fast to have heard them. 
I was seething and took several deep breaths in an attempt to calm myself. The back roads were quiet on this day. I guess not many people wanted to be out and about so soon after that nasty storm. That line of thinking was wise. There was a lot of flooding in addition to the messy mix of branches, foliage, and garbage scattered about. As I approached a sharp bend in the road, I saw flashing blue lights of a police car ahead. As I got closer, I realized he was blocking the road. The police car was unusually old and weathered. It had to be late 1970s or early 80s. I pulled to a stop next to the police car and rolled down my window. I commented on the age of his car. His reply was, They don't make them like they used to. I told him I didn't think the police stations allowed vehicles that old. He said, You'd be surprised what we can get away with in a small town. He informed me that the road ahead was blocked by a large tree that had fallen during the storm and that I needed to take a detour to bypass the road. He pointed down the road he was parked by and instructed me to take a right on the very first road I came to. He said after about 10 minutes it would come out on the other side of the fallen tree. The first road was narrow. I was hoping that I didn't meet another car coming my way because I wasn't sure we'd both be able to fit on the road. After a mile and a half, I came to a small dirt road on the right. I questioned whether this was the road the officer had directed me to turn on due to its rustic nature. I peered ahead and saw no signs of any other roads in the distance, so I assumed this had to be it. It seemed like more of a driveway than a road. It was lined heavily by thick trees. I was driving down it for a good 15 minutes when I noticed steam emanating from under the hood of my car. I looked down at my heat gauge and it was in the red. My car was overheating. I pulled to the side of the road as much as I could and shut my car off. It had been running hot for the past week and I had meant to have it taken in and looked at but kept putting it off. I guess I got what I deserved. I wasn't sure how much further this road went. My plan was to wait about 30 minutes to let my car cool off and then I'd make some decisions as to whether to continue to go forward or turn around. While waiting for the engine to cool, I decided to walk a little ways up the road to see if I could get any idea how much farther I needed to go. That's when I saw the old farmhouse. It was a two-story white house with cracked paint and dark green shutters that matched the tile on the roof. Behind the house was a massive barn. Since I had time to kill, I decided to stop at the house. They could probably inform me as to how much further it was until the road ended. As I got closer to the farmhouse, I realized that the road dead-ended at a vast dirt field next to the house. This wasn't a road. It was a driveway, just as I initially suspected. The real road I was supposed to turn down must have been a little further. At least I knew where I needed to go, and I turned and headed back toward my car. As I walked, I peered over at the enormous red barn and stopped when I noticed a red Mustang convertible parked just inside the barn entrance. It was clearly the car that almost hit me earlier. Did that jerk live here? I was still so pissed about that incident that I marched through the yard to the barn in hopes of finding that blonde-haired jackass to give him a piece of my mind. 
I was a little surprised when I reached the barn to see that the Mustang was up on cinder blocks. All four of the tires had been removed. As I got closer, I noticed a large red splat on the driver's seat. My initial thought was that it looked like blood. I startled when I heard the loud scream of an electric saw grinding against metal. I looked toward the sound and could see sparks spewing in the air at the other end of the barn. That's when I realized that this gigantic barn was filled with a variety of at least 50 different vehicles. The majority of them had been stripped down. It seemed obvious to me that this was some sort of chop shop with these vehicles being disassembled and sold for parts. Then my mind went back to the red splat on the Mustang. Why was there blood on the seat? Did they kidnap the blonde man or possibly kill him? I needed to get out of there. As I turned to spring back to my car, I saw two men approaching the barn entrance. One of the men was wearing coveralls. The other wore a nice suit and tie. They were both looking down at a legal pad and discussing something so they didn't see me. I stepped into the barn and ducked behind one of the vehicles. The two men stopped on the other side of the car and started having a conversation. That blonde guy was AB negative. He'll bring in a pretty penny. I think we have enough for today. Call Bobby and tell him to come on in. AB negative? They were talking about blood type. Cars weren't the only thing they were chopping up. For the next 20 minutes, I stayed hidden as a mishmash of various workers came in and out of the barn. My stomach dropped when the weathered old police car that had blocked the road pulled up to the barn and the officer got out. He was greeted by the man in the suit. Nice job, Bobby. We had a good haul today. I recognized the next voice as the police officer. What's with the car down the drive? He was talking about my car. They were going to realize that I wasn't there and start searching for me. And by the way, my blood type is A positive. Not as rare as AB negative, but I bet they'd be happy as clams to find that out. I was done for. All they had to do was start looking around the barn and they'd find me in a few minutes. My body filled with a touch of hope when I heard one of the men brush off the existence of my car being down the driveway. I don't know. I'll send one of the boys to pick it up in a few minutes. Lucky for me, he didn't seem too concerned. I listened on as the subject quickly turned to hearts, livers, brains, and transmissions. I could hear their shoes thud against the concrete floor of the barn as they began walking away. I stayed hidden until their voices trailed off to silence. I then carefully popped my head up and took a quick gaze around. The coast was clear. I made a mad dash for my car, got in, started it up, and drove away. I remember I kept looking in the rearview mirror as I drove back down the dirt driveway expecting to see numerous vehicles giving chase. But the driveway remained clear and I was able to slip away. By the time I reached the next town, my car was overheated and died just as I pulled into the police station. I spilled my guts to the police chief, 
I couldn't quite read his expression as the bizarre story spilled from my mouth. He seemed either confused or bored. When I finally finished telling him everything, he took in a deep breath, stood up, picked up a baton from his desk, and clobbered me over the head. I woke up handcuffed to a jail cell with a headache and a pain in my arm. I looked down to see a syringe mark in my forearm and heard the police chief speaking on the phone from a nearby room. Bobby? I got someone here I think you might be interested in. He appears healthy, should supply a fair amount of organs, and he's A-positive. The Last Man on Earth It has been a month since the human population was wiped out. The disease was fast-moving and deadly. It was an airborne disease, and once in the air, it remained there and multiplied. In only a few days, all oxygen on Earth was toxic for humans. They were all dead in less than a week. I'm all alone now. I found a nice home in a small town. The town's water company is solar-powered, so tap water will be available for some time. Of course, I have access to every grocery store in the world and have plenty of bottled water to last the rest of my days. Food as well. Animals were not affected by the disease. There will be no shortage of cows, pigs, deer, you name it. If I opt to become a hunter, it won't be difficult to obtain fresh meat. I now own every gun in the world, so that would be easy enough. And my father was a hunter, so I have a rudimentary knowledge of how to clean a carcass. I'm a decent fisherman as well, and there's a flowing river not a block away. I also planted a nice garden, which is flourishing. So yeah, food and drink aren't a problem. As for entertainment, I've always been a bookworm. The world is now my library and I love tending to my garden. Of course, I'll lack human companionship, but that's okay. I've always been a loner, and I've already taken in two dogs and a cat, so I have plenty of company. All in all, I don't think it will be too bad. I worked in a disease control center before this happened. The disease was man-made. I had been tasked with creating a vaccine. I was quite confident that I had come up with something that would work. When the disease leaked out, I had to test the vaccine on myself. I'm still alive, so apparently it works well. I had settled into my new life and have to admit that I was enjoying it. I was no longer just a cog in the wheel of society. I wasn't controlled by the command of others. I didn't have to hand over my hard-earned money to political thieves under threat of force. Nobody ruled over me. I could do what I wanted, when I wanted. Nothing was holding me back. I was king of the world. And then she arrived. 
I was outside clipping weeds in my garden when I heard her soft, dainty voice call out, Hello? I nearly jumped out of my skin. I never expected to hear another human voice again. And she was beautiful. Wavy blonde hair, a voluptuous body, striking blue eyes, and a sparkling smile. Tears of joy streamed down her face when she saw me. It was clear that she did not expect to ever see another living person again either. She ran toward me with open arms and I met her with a long, passionate embrace. It did feel good to experience the warmth of a woman's body against mine once again. I could feel our hug nearing its end. That is when I sunk my garden clippers into her abdomen. I held her close as I stabbed her over and over. I didn't let her go until I felt her body slump in my arms. I didn't release the disease on the world to have to share the planet with another person. I wanted everything for myself. That was the whole damn point of it all. I couldn't let her live. Fear began to run through my body as I pondered the question, why was she alive? I was the only one who took the vaccine. What we had here was somebody who was naturally immune to the disease. Shivers went down my spine when I realized that if she was immune, there would surely be others as well. And if she found me, they would too. But I would be waiting for them. This is my world now. Hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit maniacontheloose.com, sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much.